From the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to Volume 41, Number 3 of Grapevine. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me this week is Andrew, this week's newsreader, who also treats us to a piece on perhaps Norfolk's greatest son, Lord Nelson. Andy also joins us with another of his weird Norfolk tales. The headlines this week include, as you would expect, news of the area's COVID numbers, plus three pieces reflecting the state of our town's retail sector, in addition to a roundup of the rest of your local news. As usual, though, we start with the first part of the news, and here's Andrew. Hello everybody, Andrew here. I'm with you for the first time in 2021 and I hope it's not too late to wish you all a happy new year. As I'm recording this, the sun's shining and the days are just starting to pull out a little bit. So there's light in the sky as well as at the end of that tunnel and spring's not far off. Right, let's get into the news from around your region. The pandemic's deadliest ever day at a Norfolk hospital has once again been surpassed with 10 COVID-positive patients dying on January the 17th alone. Until the double-figure milestone was reached, the highest number of recorded deaths among patients who tested positive for the virus at the James Paget Hospital was 8 on January the 14th. During the first wave of the pandemic, there had been five deaths on a single day on April the 5th, 11th and 13th, and then May the 1st, but never more than that. Between January the 14th and 18th, however, the hospitals recorded 31 deaths of patients who tested positive. 8th on January the 14th, 2 on the 15th, 4 on the 16th, 10 on the 17th and 7 on the 18th. On the JPH's website, a spokesperson said they were all individuals with underlying health conditions. The majority of the deaths were among people aged in their 50s and older, with the notable exception of a woman in her 20s. The hospital often adds deaths to previous dates in their figures as more post-mortem tests are processed. This brings the total, sadly, of deaths at the James Paget Hospital among COVID-positive patients to 243. The total numbers recorded at Norfolk and Norwich Hospital stands at 347 and at Kings Lynn, 307. Four million people in the UK have already received their first coronavirus vaccine while patients over 70 and those deemed clinically vulnerable are now being offered appointments in some areas. The government's aim is for everyone in the top four priority groups to have received their first dose by mid-February and all adults by autumn. Meanwhile, the number of confirmed coronavirus cases have fallen week on week across all local authorities in Norfolk. The last time every local authority in Norfolk showed a weekly reduction in COVID cases per 100,000 was June the 8th, as numbers fell after the first wave of the pandemic. The data shows that in Norfolk as a whole, there were 455.7 cases per 100,000 in the seven days to January the 15th. That's a 14% reduction from the previous week. So it does seem that at last we are getting on top of this virus, 
let's just hope that that vaccine rollout keeps increasing and that everybody realises that they have their part to play and we will come through this. Now, with many of the usual Christmas events cancelled by COVID, one Norfolk company found a festive way to help a new charity to balance their books. And while most of us have packed away our decorations and baubles, the ones put up on a village Christmas tree are still helping to deliver emergency food for residents just when they need it most. Steve Ashton, director of Martham Signage Company, SSAF, has presented Reverend Dr Stephen Siver with a £2,000 cheque for the Village Food Bank after more than 60 companies and individuals had their names and logos printed on baubles adorning the company's giant Christmas tree. The fundraising idea was inspired by the Make Martham Sparkle appeal that saw the village come together to battle the coronavirus blues with twinkly lights and glowing Santas. It's been the hardest time we've ever known and to achieve this now is absolutely amazing. Even businesses that have been unable to open have come forward and helped, Mr Ashton said. I've been amazed by the generosity of all our customers, friends and the local community. We had anticipated perhaps raising £500 for the food bank, so to raise £2,000 is a great achievement. The food bank was started last year when Reverend Stephen, the priest in charge of Martham, Reps, Thurn and Clipsby, was alerted to the fact that there were people in the northern villages who could not get to the nearest food bank in Yarmouth. He said, just as we launched the food bank, the pandemic hit. We weren't able to spread the word with leaflets in the way we normally would. So this fundraising campaign with SSAF has raised awareness of the food bank as well as given us vital funds. Our mission is that no one here will be going hungry. The food bank now serves the wider flag area but desperately needs a permanent base. Currently it feeds 44 households but with few large supermarkets in its catchment it struggles for donations. The Reverend Stephen said demand grew in the second half of December and had been rising ever since. Well, that's a great effort to start the year off with and let's hope they have continued success. Sad that we need to do it though, isn't it? A man was knocked off his bike before it was stolen along with his wallet. This incident happened on Friday, January the 15th between 9 and 9.45 as the victim, a 23-year-old man, cycled along Suffolk Road in Southtown near to the junction with Anson Road. The victim was approached by four males and hit, causing him to fall to the ground where he was kicked repeatedly. The attackers stole his wallet, which contained about £20 in cash and a bank card, and his bike, described as a 70s-style light blue folding bike with a basket on the back. He suffered bruising to his face. Officers are keen to hear from anyone who may have witnessed the incident. Well, that's two contrasting stories in a matter of uh, a minute or so, isn't it? I have here now um, a, an obituary of a well-known man in Great Yarmouth and uh, name of Robin Hambling. He survived an air raid on the town as a child and he's recently sadly passed away at the age of 84. Robin was born in the town on July the 15th, 1935 and he was the son of a Yarmouth bus driver and motor engineer and he spent much of his boyhood in Craddock Avenue until the Second World War when, like many of his age group, he was evacuated to the Midlands. By 1943, the family had returned to the town, but the raids in May of that year almost ended their return in tragedy. When Robin's father was about to take his then seven-year-old son to school on his bike, there was no warning of an air raid. But when they realised what was happening, his father shouted for him to get down, boy. Following a tremendous maraud and enormous bang, a young Robin found himself under a settee and surrounded by black dust and debris. 
but his father miraculously walked away with just damaged clothing and a badly injured finger, despite laying down against a wall just ten yards away from the crater left by the bomb. The family's house was badly damaged, and his mother, who was pregnant at the time, was in the bedroom when the bomb blast blew over a wardrobe on top of her, but fortunately it landed on a headboard creating a safety cocoon. The fact that there was no air raid warning was actually a blessing in disguise, as the Hamblings bomb shelter received a direct hit and was later found wrapped around a lamppost. Robin attended North Dean School, which was temporarily housed in the former grammar school. He then went on to the technical high school and on leaving joined Toby Motors, the motor engineers on the seafront. On leaving there in 1960, he went to work for Birdseye Foods in the engineering department. When the factory closed in June 1986, he set up as a freelance mobile motor mechanic, travelling to where he was needed, working on anything from private cars to heavy lorries. But Robin's great love was motorcycles, which began at the speedway on Caister Road, when his father took him there during the Yarmouth Bloaters' prime years shortly after the war. He owned many motorcycles and travelled all over the country and indeed Europe, making many friends by combining this hobby with his other great interest of jazz music. He was a member of Yarmouth Engineering Society and was active in the Bird's Eye Former Employees Club. He was also president of the Great Yarmouth Men's Probus Club and would entertain members with talks and slideshows on jazz, speedway, motorcycles, bubble cars and his foreign holidays. During the Covid lockdown he produced a newsletter distributed to the membership called The Toxic Times which contained news of members and ribald stories and anecdotes. He was also a frequent correspondent to Great Yarmouth Mercury and Michael Bullock as Pegatty would often quote his letters. Robin's daughter Linda Sawyer described her dad as loyal and supportive. She said my dad lived and worked in Great Yarmouth for his entire life. He's been an active member of the local community and very much enjoyed this role. Over the last few days I've contacted the many friends, former colleagues and acquaintances that he gathered during his almost 85 years and I've come to realise just how many lives he touched over many, many years. He was a wonderful communicator and a loyal, supportive friend. My sisters and I will always be proud of our dad, who was taken from us so suddenly. Robin's friend Andrew Fakes said he'll be greatly missed by his many friends in the town and his wider acquaintances over England and Europe. Robin sadly died on January the 6th following a short illness, and he leaves his wife Margaret, five daughters, ten grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. And a private family funeral will take place on January the 27th. More news in a while, but firstly, Andrew continues with a piece about our most famous sailor. You may remember that on our Christmas programme, we were fortunate enough to have the Mayor of Great Yarmouth on our show. Well, today, we have another well-known Norfolk man in the spotlight. Sadly, he's not in the studio, but his legacy and association with Norfolk is huge. In his book, The Story of the British Isles in a Hundred Places, TV historian and author Neil Oliver, yes, here the flowing mane and knapsack, writes eloquently of Nelson's birthplace, HMS Victory and the Battle of Trafalgar. So, with apologies to Neil for a little bit of editing... I'd like to read you his homage to Norfolk and probably its greatest son. The received wisdom is that it's best to stay away from personal heroes for fear of disappointment. One of mine, Horatio Nelson, has, 
at the time of writing, come in for some belated character assassination, his name and reputation dragged through the mud of racism. Across the Atlantic, statues to leaders of the Confederate Army, Generals Robert E. Lee, Thomas Stonewall Jackson and others, have been torn down by those who say such works honour a regime that enslaved African Americans. Since what happens first in the United States often travels here too, our own hero of Trafalgar has been labelled a hearty accomplice to the same crime, and at least one English journalist has called him a white supremacist. Archaeologists and historians are careful not to be fooled into thinking we can ever put ourselves in the minds of those who lived in the past, or even the recent past. Nelson was a product of a Georgian world that is out of reach like all the rest. Revere him or not, it's still worth walking around some of the places where he spent time. We cannot hope fully to understand him. None of his footprints have been preserved, pressed into the Norfolk mud like those of the ancient hunters, but there are glimpses to be had of the places that moulded him. The village of Burnham Thorpe, just a mile inland from the North Norfolk coast, is where he first drew breath on September the 29th, 1758. The sixth of eleven children born to Edmund and Catherine, the local parson and his wife. It is one of those settlements, flinty cottages, red tiled roofs, whitewashed walls, that let a person know they are probably on the east coast, whether there are any road signs visible or not. The old rectory where Nelson was actually born was pulled down after Edmund's death in 1802. A new parsonage was built close to the footprint, grander than the original by all accounts. On the wall there is a bronze plaque, dark with patina and verdigris. Beneath the hero's name it reads, The old rectory in which the admiral was born stood 20 yards back from this wall. What does survive, however, in the private garden of the younger building is some of Nelson's own handiwork. Having joined the Royal Navy aged 12, serving first under the command of his mother's uncle, he was gone from Burnham Thorpe for a long time. He saw service in the Baltic, in Canada and the West Indies. In 1787 he married Francis Nisbet, and during a period of peace with France, the couple returned to England. Captain Nelson was, as they say in the senior service, cast on the beach, that is, laid off on half pay. By 1788, the Nelsons were back in the village of his birth and back in the old rectory. It was a frustrating period for one so ambitious, and he spent at least some of his time pestering contacts and patrons in the hope of an early return to gainful employment. But for five years, none came his way, and it was during the lull that he created, with the help of a gardener called Williamson, a frankly bizarre ship-shaped pond in the garden of the house. Fed by a diversion of the nearby River Burn, it is over 30 feet long, with a square-ended stern and a pointed bow. To say it reveals what was really on his mind at the time is a massive understatement. Arguably his most famous monument in the village is the Lord Nelson Pub. It opened as the Plough in 1636, but was later renamed in honour of the local boy made good. In 1793 he was recalled to active duty and given command of HS Agamemnon which was supposedly his favourite ship. So excited was he by the prospect of going back to sea, he hosted a dinner for the locals, and when news later reached them of his victory at the Battle of the Nile in 1798, they renamed the pub the Lord Nelson. I had a pint there in 2008, and it was a wonderful place. Dark wood panelling, narrow creaking corridors, 
cosy bars and cosier snugs. Smoking bans and business rates being as they are though, even such a venerable venue has lately fallen victim to market forces. I contacted the present owners, Green King Brewers, who told me the pub had closed its doors in 2016 and there were no immediate plans to reopen. It seems a meagre reminder of a star so bright as Nelson's. He lost the sight in his right eye during the siege of Calvi on Corsica in 1794 and the use of his right arm at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife three years later. And it was during his posting to Naples after the Battle of the Nile that he met and fell in love with his soulmate, Emma, Lady Hamilton, wife of William Hamilton, his Majesty's ministry to the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies. Emma had been mistress to, and cast aside by, Hamilton's nephew, Charles Francis Greville. Her new husband was 60 when they wed, and she was just 26. They were a glamorous couple, he charming and erudite, she beautiful and beguiling. They hosted parties where Emma, a veteran of the theatres of Drury Lane, would entertain their guests by performing her attitudes, dressing up and striking poses to bring to mind all manner of characters, such as Medea from Greek legend or Mary Magdalene. When Horatio Nelson entered their orbit, both Hamiltons were entranced by him. When William died, he was in his wife's arms and holding Nelson's hand. In 1801, while still in their respective marriages, Nelson and Emma had a daughter together, Horatia. During the Battle of Copenhagen that same year, Nelson's senior officer Sir Hyde Parker put up a signal ordering Nelson to cease his action. Ever the aggressor when his blood was up, Nelson put his telescope to his blind eye and said to those around him, I really do not see the signal, an economy with the actuality that gifted us the phrase turning a blind eye. In 1804, with Trafalgar just beyond his horizon, Nelson wrote about his village from the desk in his cabin aboard HMS Victory as she cruised by the island of Ushant off the Brittany coast. He says, Most probably I shall never see dear, dear Burnham again, and I have the satisfaction in thinking that my bones will probably lie with my fathers in the village that gave me birth. If there is to be a symbol of British dominance of world ocean, the achievement, the spirit that enabled the British Empire, then I say it is the wide-bellied, bull-headed hull of HMS Victory. Her keel, made from the trunks of seven elm trees, was laid at Chatham Dockyard on the 23rd of July 1759. More than 150 workers used 6,000 trees in total, almost all of them oaks, to build her frame. Oak trees are the unsung heroes of the Royal Navy of the 17th, 18th and 19th century and it has been estimated that timber from 50,000 trees was afloat in the form of 27 ships of the line that Nelson commanded at the Battle of Trafalgar. Much of the oak went on single pieces, like her 30-foot high stern post. More went into her outer planking, and at the waterline her timbers were two feet thick. Some 3,000 feet of strong, supple fir and spruce provided her decks, masts and yard arms. 27 miles of rigging, served four acres of sail and two tons of nail and bolts shaped from copper and iron held her together. Even with all our modern technology it is unlikely we could even attempt to build a vessel of such a size of such manoeuvrability from timber. The skills required are gone along with so much else our ancestors worked so hard to acquire to master and to finesse. Victory was completed by 1765 but she was not needed right away and spent most of her next 13 years 
berthed in the River Medway. However, she almost never left the dockyard at all. On the eve of her launch, ship foreman Hartley Larking realised that not only was she the largest ship built so far for the Royal Navy, she was indeed some nine and a half inches wider than the gates of the dock. With a party of government and navy high-ups due for a lavish launch party, Larkin led a team of men armed with axes and saws to swiftly hack away the extra inches from the gate's timbers. With no room to spare, the vessel squeaked through into the river. A painful but messy berth. The Battle of Trafalgar on the 21st of October 1805 was a slow-motion nightmare for the crews involved. Light winds meant that from first sighting one another, it took six hours for the fleets to come within fighting distance. Victory was a full half hour behind the first contact. Scores of her men dead and her steering already damaged by enemy fire. But when she broke through the centre of the enemy line, she unloaded a devastating broadside into the stern of the French flagship Beausantaire. Much as Nelson had imagined and intended, the fighting descended into chaotic pell-mell stuff. Every ship, captain and sailor, knowing their commander, expected them each to fight their own war. In spite of every man doing his duty, though, in spite of it all, the unthinkable happened. At around quarter past one in the afternoon, a sniper high in the mast of the French ship Redoutable, cheek by jowl with victory, fired a musket ball through Nelson's chest and into his spine. A man long convinced of a necessary rendezvous with death, Nelson knew it for a mortal wound. When his men carried him down into the damp stink of the cockpit on the all-up deck closest to the keel, he declared as much to the surgeon. Ah, Mr Beatty, you can do nothing for me, he said. I have but a short time to live. My back is shot through. There among the rest of Victory's many wounded, he lingered in terrible pain for several hours, dying at around 4.30pm. Whether he ever asked for a kiss from Captain Thomas Hardy is lost among the legend. Perhaps he spoke rather of kismet, meaning destiny. He lived long enough to know the battle was won and England safe. His body was preserved in a barrel of brandy, and word of his death reached London and the Admiralty before he did. Though he imagined he would be laid to rest beside his father in the churchyard of All Saints back in Burnham Thorpe, he was buried in St Paul's Cathedral on the 9th of January 1806. His father's church, All Saints, has both parents' graves, but not his own. In 1881, the Lords of the Admiralty presented the church with a lectern made with oak from the Victory, his flagship at Trafalgar. The Nelson Ensign, white with a red cross and the Union Jack in one quadrant, flies from the square tower, as it has since the first Sea Lord gave his permission in 1913. And only St Martin in the Fields in London shares the same honour. All about the soft wet green of Norfolk spreads away in every direction. Overhead the sky is as big as it ever was and Nelson matters as much as he ever did.
see the conquering hero and rule Britannia. Last night of the prom stalwarts there. Right, let's lighten the proceedings with another tale of Weird Norfolk. Hello, this is Andy with another of the Weird Norfolk stories. And this one relates to one Joseph Bexfield and the Lantern Man of Thirlton. And Thirlton, for those of you who don't know, lies just south of Reedham. His gravestone is covered in a lattice of lichen. The simple Norfolk wherry etched into the stone the only clue to the mysterious demise of unfortunate Joseph Bexfield. But although Bexfield was a wherryman and his work was often treacherous, it was not to blame for his death on August the 11th, 1809, on a dark night when the mist swept in across Thirlton Stade and the shadowy lantern man took up sentry duty in the marshes. Bexfield and his fellow sailors were enjoying a drink at the White Horse Inn, when Joseph Bexfield remembered he had left an important parcel for his wife on the wherry. Fearing a frosty reception if he returned home empty-handed, he told his friends he would head back to the boat to retrieve the parcel before walking to his house where his wife and two children were waiting. His friends pleaded with him to reconsider. Outside it was pitch black. The swirling mist punctuated only by pale, flickering lights which appeared to be dancing across the marsh. The lantern man was abroad. Only ten years early, Samuel Taylor Coleridge had written about the lantern man, or will-o'-the-wisp, as many called the ghostly lights that hover and wheel above boggy marshland on dark moonless nights in The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. About in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oil, burnt green and blue and white. Coleridge's death fires were first mentioned in print in 1563, described as ignis fautus, foolish fire that hurteth only but those that feareth fools. Forty years later, Shakespeare wrote of wildfire in Henry VI, Part I, while Will-o'-the-Wisp was first mentioned by the dramatist John Day in the early 1600s. Sir Isaac Newton wrote of the eerie marsh light in his opus Optic, published in 1704. Popular tradition said Will, the lantern man or jack-o'-lantern, carried candle-lit lanterns in the darkness to attract weary travellers, who they would lead across the marshes to their certain death. Back in Thirlton, Bexfield, more frightened of an angry wife than any lantern man, laughed at the stories, pointing out how well he knew the marshes near his home. Just before the indoor closed behind him, a friend made one last attempt to persuade him to stay in the snug safety of the bar, but Bexfield ignored his warning, heading off purposefully into the enveloping darkness. It was the last time he was seen alive. When Bexfield failed to return home or to work the next morning, a thorough search of the marshes was carried out, but no traces of the 38-year-old were found. His body finally washed up 
on the banks of the River Yar three days later, and his grieving family had him buried in the All Saints Church in Thirlton. As recently as the 1950s, locals still believed that the ghost of Joseph Bexfield could still be seen drifting across the marshes on dark, misty nights, stopping occasionally to light his torch or give a whistle before disappearing back into the gloom. Almost 50 years later, in a letter to a national newspaper, the eponymous EGR spoke of seeing the mysterious ghost lights in Norfolk regularly. It is popularly believed that if a man with a lighted lantern goes near one, the enraged lantern man will knock him down and burst his lantern to pieces, he wrote. More than one labourer has assured me that such a thing has happened to himself. Question. Can the lighted lantern have ignited marsh gas and caused an explosion which has startled the rustic and burst his lantern? Regardless of startled rustics and broken lanterns, the scientific explanation of will-o'-the-wisps is a far cry from the romance and mysticism of folklore. It is believed that the ghostly lights are produced when organic matter decays, causing the oxidisation of hydrogen phosphate and methane gas, which produce a so-called cold flame. Thanks, Andy. OK, more news now, so it's back to Andrew. Now, despite the best efforts of both national authority and local councils, people are still floating the Covid rules. We have here the story of a man who made a 128-mile round trip for fish and chips and he was among 65 people fined for breaking lockdown rules over the weekend. Since Friday, January the 15th, Norfolk Constabulary has issued 65 fines to people for breaking COVID-19 regulations, while 82 people have received warnings. And among those who was fined was a man who'd driven all the way from Mildenhall in Suffolk to Scrapby to buy fish and chips. Others included a group of men from different households who'd been drinking together in Norwich, and got into a fight, and a group of three who had travelled to Norwich from London. That trio originally told officers they were going to hospital, before later admitting it was a social visit. I'll leave a space here for you all to comment on that one to yourselves. Further fines were also issued to people for breaking rules on household mixing and allowing small gatherings to take place. Julie Vendeth, Norfolk Constabulary's Assistant Chief Constable, said... The overwhelming majority of people take their personal responsibility seriously in following lockdown rules. I'm grateful of this approach and we need to carry on with this effort to reduce the risk of transmission and the spread of the virus. However, we continue to see a minority who, despite being aware of the rules, choose to ignore them. It is these such cases where people blatantly breach the rules where we will take action. Officers will, of course, use their discretion and take account of individual circumstances but we must remember these rules are in place to protect us all and will only work effectively if we all follow them. And Great Yarmouth Borough Council has hit back at uninformed social media users who've criticised the role of coronavirus marshals working to promote community safety. Following reports some have been facing resistance and abuse online, the council has moved to reassure the public about their role and dispel any ill feeling. A fleet of marshals wearing high-vis jackets have been employed by the council to carry out a range of roles to do with keeping the public safe and limiting the spread of coronavirus 
as infection rates in the area remain dangerously high. Carl Smith, leader of Great Yarmouth Borough Council, said, While unfortunately there have been some uninformed comments on social media about the role of the marshals, the vast majority of feedback received directly has been high praise for their important work to support community safety as part of this response. The marshals are a dedicated team drawn from our own community and I know from joining them on several occasions that they really do great work seven days a week, helping with the vaccination programme rollout, contact tracing and testing, in addition to providing that high visibility advice and guidance in the streets. We do get positive feedback from grateful residents and businesses that they've helped. My clear message is that marshals are here to help you, to support the safety of everyone, and they're needed more than ever as infection rates are still dangerously high in the area. But this is a national cause and we as one community all have a part to play by following the public health rules and heeding the national call to stay home, protect the NHS and save lives. Some 17 full and part-time marshals who work seven days a week were taken on just before Christmas. Their duties include patrolling high footfall areas in Galston and Great Yarmouth as well as the two seafronts. They are also being used to control queues at vaccination centres and as pharmacy runners. The council is in the process of employing a pool of casual marshals it can dip into at times of high demand, paying £10.75 an hour. Now, a town centre post office has been forced to close for the second time in a week. The post office inside the WH Smith store in King Street closed on Tuesday, January the 19th, quote, due to staffing issues caused by the coronavirus pandemic. The service planned to be in a position to reopen on Wednesday. Previously, the branch had temporarily closed on Friday due to staffing issues, but had reopened. There are alternative branches on Southtown Road and North Deans in Great Yarmouth. During the lockdown, Great Yarmouth Central Post Office has also revised hours and is not open on a Saturday afternoon or all day Sunday. The spokesman added, it is not appropriate to discuss the health of staff and whether they have tested positive. Suffice to say that staff are having to self-isolate. Post offices are classed as essential retailers by the government, along with banks and building societies. Sadly, we have news of another store closure here. The store called Outfit, which is on the Gapton Hall estate, is to close in Great Yarmouth, as well as the one in Norwich, with the loss of 714 jobs. That's nationwide, of course. Last week, staff, including the manager, were called to clear stock out at the Norwich Outfit store on Riverside, and they were told by conference call that the branch was closing. It was unclear then whether the Outfit store all would close. But it is now understood 31 branches, including the one at Gapton Hall in Great Yarmouth, were closed by the end of the month. Owners, Sir Philip Green's Arcadia Retail Empire, collapsed into administration at the start of December as a result of coronavirus. Outfit, which was acquired by Arcadia from Sears in 1999, is not a fashion brand itself, but sells all of the group's brands in out-of-town and city destinations. The move comes a day after the deadline for rescue bids, which included one from High Street Stalwart next. Arcadia administrators Deloitte declined to comment. And while on that uh, sad theme, the trio of companies behind the Marketgates shopping centre in Great Yarmouth has also collapsed into administration. Tenants in the Marketgates centre received letters on Tuesday the 19th, advising them that joint administrators from Deloitte had been appointed on December the 2nd. 
the day the second lockdown ended and shops were allowed to reopen. A spokesman for Deloitte said David Soden and Matt Smith were appointed as administrators over three shopping centres on December the 2nd. These centres are based in Great Yarmouth, Sutton in Ashfield and Ashton under Lyne. Each centre is run by Alande, who will continue to operate them. The letter, which was seen by the Great Yarmouth Mercury, said the administrators were seeking to, quote, stabilise the business, maximise the potential of the locations by way of both retail and non-retail uses, and consider an exit strategy to the administrators in due course. It added that the effect of going into administration was to offer protection to the limited companies named as Redleaf 6, Ashton, Baymount Overseas and Isinger. Centre manager Nick Spencer said it was business as usual and that day-to-day trading at the centre would not be affected. The centre previously went into administration in 2012 when it was retained by the Bank of Scotland as part of a much larger restructuring of its then owner's Miller Group. It was subsequently taken on by Alandi, which claims to have the largest and most geographically diverse shopping centre portfolio in the UK. Casting your minds back now, Market Gates was built in the 1970s. I'm sure many of us can remember that opening. And it's home to a number of high street brands, including Pandora, Wilkinson's, Boots, Iceland and New Look, as well as a number of independent and charity shops. Because of the number of essential retailers, the centre has remained opening during the lockdown. However, Starbucks announced that it is intention to close on Thursday, January the 21st and reopen sometime in February. The retail sector was struggling even before the coronavirus pandemic and the national restrictions forcing shops to close and reducing demand for items like clothing. That's yeah, a little bit disappointing, but on the flip side of that, I can bring you some good news about the former Marks and Spencer's store. A major retailer has signalled that it still intends to move into the former store and bring three other names from within the multi-retailer group with it. If the plans go ahead, it will be the first time in six years that the former Marks and Spencers building in King Street, Great Yarmouth, has opened its doors. Is that really six years ago? According to papers submitted to Great Yarmouth Borough Council planners, Sports Direct plans to transform the building and add Evans Cycles, Game and designer clothing retailer USC all owned by Mike Ashley's Fraser Group. Town Centre Manager Jonathan Newman hailed the plans as fantastic news after initial works at the site were halted by the coronavirus pandemic, throwing a question mark over whether the move would go ahead or not. He said it's great news for the town centre, particularly given the last 12 months of Covid restrictions and the delay in Sports Direct making the move from Gapton Hall. It's going to add a number of names to the town centre when we will be looking to recover from all of the issues that we have faced with the pandemic. It really is fantastic news. It is understood that the investment at the key site will involve closing the Sports Direct store at Captain Hall. The group has not outlined what it plans to do with the game store in Market Gates. Indications the new store looks to be going ahead with other brands widening its appeal comes in the wake of a £13.7 million award for Yarmouth from the Future High Streets Fund which it's hoped means the Beals stroke Palmer's transformation into a library and university hub is now secure. And the town is also poised for a new £3.5 million market aimed at creating a destination shopper and leisure offer. Cycling is something that has really taken off over the last few months, so that will be a good asset, Mr Newman added. There is a lot of opportunity and optimism for the town centre once we get through this pandemic, and this adds to it.
the application seeks consent for external alterations to the shopfront and advertisement signage. And the papers focus on the basement and ground floor of the store and suggest a bright shopfront with window light boxes advertising what's outside. Well, that's really some positive news at last. And hopefully we will see our town centre back and looking spick and span again very, very soon. So, pandemic or not, here's a problem that never ever seems to go away and people never ever seem to take any notice of it. The council is asking a particularly severe case of fly-tipping to be investigated after documents were left amongst the discarded pile of rubbish. Residents of Runham in the Broads noticed the mess on the road between the village and Thrigby on Wednesday, which included toys, cosmetic products, personal documents and even coins. One man who lives in the village but does not want to be named said, fly-tipping was a constant problem in rural areas on walking routes and in laybys, but this one had been particularly flagrant. He said, we get fly-tipping here regularly because of how quiet it is. People know they won't be seen. Once we had an old caravan dragged outside the church. I know of so many villagers who spend their walks picking up other people's rubbish. If it's not fly-tipping, it's people discarding their McDonald's packaging or energy drinks. It's just constant and it's really not fair on us. On this occasion, the amount of rubbish dumped was rather severe. It wasn't your average amount. There seemed to be a lot of letters addressed to someone who wasn't from the village and Great Yarmouth Borough Council rangers were made aware. Great Yarmouth Borough Council confirmed it had cleared the waste on Friday and was in the early stages of investigating the incident. As a spokesperson said, we are unable to comment on what enforcement action will be taken against those involved until the investigation is complete. On a positive note, however, they added that the authority did not see a significant increase in the level of fly-tipping crimes over the Christmas period compared to what was expected. Council spokesman said, we'd ask anyone who witnesses an environmental crime or has information that may help to identify an offender to contact the environmental rangers on the Report It GY app or by calling 01493 846 478. Well, let's hope if they can trace those documents and trace the offenders, they are duly punished. Well, that's all we have for this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Margaret, and we're pleased to say that Aileen is now fit and well and will be back the following week. We hope that we can look forward to welcome you once again for our first edition for February with much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, stay well and safe and bye for now.